When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, please, Gavin. No one's going to shop at a record store named Ye Old Pox and Cod Wallop. Ass. The following podcast contains a lot of screaming, profanity, explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you dared to come in my record store and ask for Debbie Gibson's Out of the Blue, what the hell were you thinking? This is episode number 403, not today, not on Rex Manning Day edition of the show, where we talk about free internet record stores and the movies they gave us. Stay tuned. The What the Hell You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Whipped Cream Records, the record store that only carries whipped creams and other delights. If you've ever thumbed through a record collection shelf, you'll notice there's one album all vinyls must have. Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass's 1965 hit record, Whipped Cream and Other Delights. With over 6 million copies sold, this epic album is a mainstay of vinyl culture and the single most ubiquitous record in the world. Whipped Cream's records is the source for this album, and this album only. No Beatles, no discos, no copies of thrillers, just hundreds of copies of Whipped Cream and Other Delights because you cannot call yourself a vinyl collector until you have Herb Albert on yourself. So, if you're looking to start or complete your classic vinyl collection, you are legally required to own a copy of Whipped Cream and Other Delights, and the best place to get it is Whipped Cream Records. I own this store called Championship Vinyl. It's located in a neighborhood that attracts the bare minimum of window shoppers. I get by because the people who make a special effort to shop here. Mostly young men who spend all their time looking for deleted Smith singles, an original, not re-released underline, Frank Zappa albums. The fetish properties are not unlike porn. I'd feel guilty taking their money if I wasn't, well, kind of one of them. I told you about my early forays into music, how I had to sell my Dungeons and Dragons books because of the satanic panic, and how I used the money to buy heavy metal records. What a nerd. Nerd alert! <laughs> when I started buying back in the day, I bought some vinyl, but most of what I bought was on cassette because it was easier to keep my parents from seeing exactly what kind of music their only son was banging his head to. It is the work of Satan. By the time I was old enough to really buy music, the CD revolution was in full swing and nobody was buying vinyl anymore. Everyone wanted compact discs because they are their future. Still, like most teens, I ended up with a fairly sizable collection of vinyl records, 100 or so, and I toted around with me as I moved from place to place despite not really listening to them. I could do this because I was in the military and didn't have to pay for movers, nor did I need to box them up and move them myself. When I left the military, I lost that little perk and rapidly discovered it's a huge pain in the ass to move boxes of records, and, and don't even get me started in all the goddamn books. So, sometime in the early 2000s, I began a project 
to burn all my albums and CDs. Set fire to them. No, no, no. I mean, I ripped them. Rip this to shreds. No, 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 no. I forgot no one does that anymore because everything is already on digital. I mean, I copied them all to MP3s and kept them on a hard drive and on my iPod. Then I sold nearly every CD and vinyl album I had. This was back in the day when you could still get a little money for them, but before vinyl collecting had become popular again. I needed the money, and honestly, why would anyone want to carry around hundreds of CDs and record albums when you could carry every song you owned in the palm of your hand? I decided it was the future. Fast forward 20 years, and, uh, and here I am, turning 50. Shut up, old man! When I hit 40, I decided to recapture my childhood by buying back all the D&D books I sold. So it was only natural that when I turned 50, I wanted to buy back my childhood by buying back all the vinyl records that I sold. You're not very smart, aren't you? Definitely not, but it's not like I was going to retire, well, ever. So I think, why not just enjoy what I have while I have it before I inevitably have to sell everything again and then move on a dilapidated single-wide trailer on my nephew's plot of land and slowly wait for death to take me. Dream big, right? And I think about it, I should probably let my nephew in on this little plan of mine. The reason I mention all this is because... It's Rex Manning Day. Well, technically, April 8th is Rex Manning Day, so the week this episode drops, we will have observed Rex Manning Day. At least those of us who observe it. What, you, the faithless infidel, might ask, is the Rex Manning Day? The Hollywood Reporter has an answer for you. Quote, Rex Manning Day is serious business for fans of Empire Records, and every year on April 8th, Twitter is trending about the event that took place in the 1995 film. Actor Maxwell Caulfield, who played the aging pompous music idol Rex Manning, says he finds the day both heartwarming and stunning. It's titled Rex Manning Day, but it might as well be called Empire Record Day. It initially eluded me because the film had been such a box office disappointment, so I didn't give, the much, give it much credence that it has developed over the years. It just won't go away. It's one of those showbiz oddities, unquote. Empire Records is one of those movies that if you know it, you know it. It's an ideal cult classic. The IMDb blurb says, quote, 24 hours in the lives of young employees at Empire Records when they all grow up and become young adults, thanks to each other and the manager. They all face the store during joining a chain store with strict rules, unquote. Which is accurate, but sparse. It doesn't capture any of the charms of the movies. That plot, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's a coming-of-age-slash-workplace comedy about a small-town record store struggling to survive as chain stores are sweeping the market. The store's owner, a toilet store magnate heir... What was that again? Oh, yeah, the current owner of the eponymous Empire Records' father made his fortune selling plumbing fixtures, but was at heart a music lover, so he opened the Empire and then left the store to his son, Mitch, upon his death, and Mitch wants to sell the store to a chain. Joe, the Empire's manager, is trying to save enough money to buy the store for Mitch and save the Empire. The problem is, when Lucas, one of Joe's staff, tries to help and takes the day's proceeds to Atlantic City and wages it all on a single throw of the dice in a craps game, which he wins and doubles his money, and then he loses it by letting it ride. He lost all of it. This is pretty much the plot, but the charm of the movie is the characters facing the sort of life changes teens face as high school ends and adulthood begins. 
BuzzFeed sums them up, quote, These characters, a good girl, a slutty girl, a gothy girl, an artist boy, an adorable weirdo, a beatnik, a tool cool rocker, hippie stoner, and a wannabe, with whom nearly any high schooler could identify or toward whom they could direct their desire. It was, as one member crew member pointed out, breakfast club at the record store, but even weirder, unquote. The movie's not a great movie, not in the critical sense. Gene Siskel said in his review, quote, a lousy comic drama about the efforts of some independent record store employees to maintain the integrity of their business, unquote. And the kindest reviews said pretty much the same thing, but with an awesome soundtrack. And the awesome soundtrack, fucking stellar. But the movie featured some actors who would go on to become Hollywood royalty. Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger, both of the very early in the career, play charming, if a bit generic, characters in the film. Uncle goddamn, both of them are so smoking hot in their roles. Anthony LaPaglia, who played Joe the manager, was early in his career and seemed to be on his way to an A-list leading man status that never quite developed, which sucks because I loved him in pretty much all of his 90s movies. Add to this an ensemble cast of young actors who gave a lot of heart to the flick but never really broke out, and he had a decent movie for what it was. And the movie totally flopped in theaters. It made $250,000 on a $10 million budget. That should have been the end of this movie. But like any good cult classics, there were two things. First of all, home video, and then much later, the internet. Contrast this with the other great record store movie. High Fidelity which was a box office and critical success, despite the characters being charitably, well, let's just put it, unpleasant. John Cusack's Rob is a neurotic Peter Pan type who mopes his way through life because his inability to grow up and settle down into adulthood keeps interfering with his happiness. What came first, the music or the misery? People worry about kids playing with guns or watching violent videos. Some sort of culture of violence will take them over. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? To which, hey, I get it. I can relate. Then there is Barry, who embodies the Pretty much platonic ideal of the record shop snob, who shits on anyone whose taste in music is not exactly what he likes. And then finally, there is Dick, who, despite an encyclopedic knowledge of music, is a massive doormat existing only to be walked on by everyone else in his life. All of them are pretty much the whole reason why chain stores came to dominate over indie record shops, because every record shop had some variation of these three people, often combined into one very annoying human being. More on that in a minute. If Empire Records was a mid-90s teenage Gen X anxiety movie, High Fidelity was a early 2000s Gen X anxiety movie about the disappointments of our becoming adults. The big thread that connects these two movies is them being set in record shops in a very specific time and place for record shops. The end of times. Let me explain. The record store for all you youngs out there. More from the BuzzFeed article, quote, Try to remember what the record store felt like in the 90s. This was before MP3s and Napster. Before you could listen to all the things all the time. When what you bought became de declarative of taste. But the record store was also a cultural center where you went, especially as a teen, to figure out what your taste were. 
to have conversations and embarrassments and thrilling first listens that made you feel adult and alive, unquote. For decades, if you wanted to buy a record, you went to your friendly neighborhood record store. And you probably went on Tuesday. Tuesday were a big fucking deal for record shops because that is the day when new albums were allowed to be sold. Started in the 80s, the labels engineered a system with the distributors to get new products to the stores on a Monday morning, and the stores would start selling them on Tuesdays. For big releases, lines would form around the block as fans waited for the store to open. And it wasn't at all weird to have 20 or 30 people just waiting on a random Tuesday just to come in and see what was new. It was great business for the stores, who had never operated on the widest of margins. There was money to be made in record stores, even in a small town, which might have two or three of them, each specializing in different kinds of music. The market can handle that kind of competition because that is where you bought your records. But by the mid-1990s, that was all changing. Why is that? Well, first of all, there were the chains. Tower Records has opened stores all over the planet where you'll find all the music in the universe. Is that cool or what? Thousands of CDs, just $7.99, like Aretha Franklin, John Coltrane, Van Morrison, James Taylor, Todd Rundgren, also just $7.99, Prince, Dire Straits, The Doors, Jackson Brown, Genesis, Everything But The Girl, and Depeche Mode. Tower Records, more music for less money. Tower Records opened their first store in Sacramento, California in 1960. By 1979, there was a Tower Records in Japan. At its peak, there were towers in addition to Japan in the United Kingdom, Canada, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, Ireland, the United Arab Emirates, Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador, and Argentina, and of course, all over the United States. Tower Records were a chain. They shared branding and purchasing power. But they were still locally owned, so it kept the indie vibe. You could find Esoterica in a tower. In New York City, the tower on the Upper West Side was a completely different vibe and product selection than the one in the East Village. But if you were a small record store owner, having a tower open near you was easily a death sentence because tower could and did undercut your prices because tower could buy in bulk. And then there were the mall stores. Camelot, Sam Goody, Tape World. They were in every sense of the word chain stores, identical with identical inventory. Mall stores specialized in what was popular at the moment. No one shopped at Sam Goody's for some rare import or deep jazz cut. Your parents shopped at Sam Goody because you wanted the Thriller album for Christmas and they were at the mall anyway. This was the, th the state of things from roughly the late 1970s through the early 1990s and then... They came, the big box stores, and they were a death knell for indie record shops. Right around the time the compact disc became the new thing, stores like Walmart, Target, Circuit City, and Best Buy began to crop up all over the retail landscape. Like herpes. These stores were places where you could buy anything and everything for cheap. That included records and CDs. And they were murdering the mom and pop store in general, but they were devastating to independent record stores, not because they had great selections or curated inventory. They had the same shit you could buy at Tape World, but they had it really fucking cheap. 
Toss in the record labels releasing their back catalogs on CD, meaning a lot of old stuff was in the mass market supply chains and the indies simply couldn't compete because most people weren't looking for a hard-to-find 7-inch import of an obscure Swedish metal band. They wanted... Michael... Bolton? And they didn't want to be sneered at when they asked for the CD because Michael Bolton was a... And that no-talent ass clown... Let me be honest with you. I have what could be fairly characterized as uh, terrible taste in music. I unironically love Phil Collins, and one of my greatest joys in life is how much I love what is perhaps the most widely reviled song in American pop music. We built this city on rock and roll. I like what I like, and I don't care that what I like sucks. This has been the case since I first began listening to music as a teenager. I learned early on that if I were to go into an indie record store or even a tower and purchase, say, Poison's Look What the Cat Dragged In, I stood a really good chance of some slightly older teenager giving me the death stare while grudgingly ringing up that loathsome piece of pop trash they laughingly called music. This only got worse as I got older. This whole scene from High Fidelity? For a record for my daughter for her birthday, I just called to say I love you. Do you have it? Yeah. Great. We have it. Great. Can I have it then? No. No, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that sells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. What's your problem? Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that song. Oh, oh, oh. Is she in a coma? Oh, okay, buddy. I didn't know it was pick on the middle-aged square guy day. My apologies. I'll be on my way. Bye-bye. Played out fairly on the reg. It was a stereotype for a reason. Though even I, in my youth, would never buy I Just Called to Say I Love You. I would tape it from my sister, who was 13, would have bought it that way. Now today, on the other hand, I would definitely go in and buy I Just Called to Say I Love You and not feel bad about it at all. So I learned that buying music at the mall or even Walmart never exposed me to the judgmental bullshit of a record store clerk whose only real accomplishment in life was an encyclopedic knowledge of proto-ska bands out of Lithuania. Even today, I have received the record store side-eye after a particularly joyous dollar-rack dive, so shopping at a record store if you are not a music person can be problematic, as it was then, as it is now. Get what you want wherever you can find it the cheapest. I mean, I don't fucking care where I buy it. I just want to buy it. Discogs, Amazon, the record store. I just want the record, okay? I, I put up with that shit at a bookstore, but I just want to buy a copy of Bruce Hornsby on the range. Not be judged by someone whose entire music collection consists of Bolivian hip-hop when they were born in Schenectady in 2001. Indie music stores, by this time, weren't really called record stores anymore since everyone was buying their music and since CD. And, and on top of that, they were all but dead from the chain stores and, of course, Napster. For more on that, check out episode 318, all about the rise of online music piracy. So the last thing that record stores needed was this. That's iPod. I happen to have one right here in my pocket, matter of fact. There it is, right there. So... This amazing little device holds a thousand songs and it goes right in my pocket. In 2001, Steve Jobs perfected the MP3 player, taken from a glitchy toy to a useful and reliable way listening to listen to music. And since he needed a legal way for you to buy music for your iPod, Apple went and gave us iTunes, which was pretty much all she wrote for record stores. Game over, man. It's game over. 
There were still a few indie stores out there, largely surviving on passionate, dedicated customers who wanted specific kinds of music, many of them specializing in specific genres like jazz or classical. A few managed to eke out a subsistence-level existence by expanding into books and similar merchandise, though Amazon was coming for them real fucking quick. And even the chain stores faltered. Tower went bankrupt in its ma- after its massive worldwide expansion came up against the digital revolution. Virgin Records soon followed, so that by 2010, the only place you could still buy some physical music media with the big box stores and the internet. It was widely assumed that record stores were as dead as pager shops, fax machines, dealerships, and film developing kiosks. So, in 2007, an attempt to, uh, damn the man, save the empire, was created. Billboard.com explains, quote, Seven months prior, nearly one year after the iconic Tower Records retail conglomerate had closed its doors for good, a group of men and women from three organizations, the Alliance of Independent Media Stores, Coalition for Independent Music Stores, and the Department of Record Stores, gathered in a hotel basement in Baltimore for what has since become a recurring meeting. Noise in the basement. The meeting brings members, primarily record store owners from each organization together, including Record Store Day co-founder Carrie Collision and coordinating founders Eric Levin and Michael Bennell to discuss all things vinyl. It was there that the concept for a celebration was conceived, unquote. The idea was simple. Modeled on the popular free comic book day and comic book shops had created, Record Store Day would offer exclusive records for, for people who came into record stores to buy them. There would be meet and greets, autographs, signings, and other special events to draw people into the shops. And it sounds crazy, but the idea worked. Record Store Day is still going strong some 16 years later, though... Another unlikely event has made the day problematic for record stores. What kind of event? It's becoming increasingly expensive for record store days to continue because now people are buying vinyl records again like crazy. By 1988, CDs had passed vinyl as the dominant form of music media and record labels began dropping their vinyl pressings down to damn near zero. Vinyl records existed almost entirely in the used market. But since 2007, and it's probably coincidence that Record Store Day began that year as well, but maybe not. I couldn't find any proof one way or another. Vinyl records started, sales started to climb. According to the Recording Industry Artist of America, the RIAA, in 2007, around 2.5 million vinyl records were sold in the U.S., and since then, the numbers have steadily increased. At first, it was considered to be the exclusive domain of hipsters. Like uh, fixed gear bicycles or inexplicable facial hair. But sales kept increasing, and not just in Brooklyn. All around the country, indeed around the world, people were buying vinyl again. And the buyers were all across the age demographics. A 2019 YouGov poll found that vinyl buyers were spread pretty equally among the generations. Quote, baby boomers, 36%, are the most likely age group to indicate that they're willing to pay for music on vinyl records while one-third, 33% of Gen Xers, 28% of Millennials, and 26% of Gen Zers say the same, unquote. And not just used vinyl. New releases are rapidly becoming hot sellers on vinyl. Wikipedia tells us, quote, Taylor Swift's ninth studio album, Evermore, in 2020, sold 102,000 vinyl LPs in a single week in June of 2021, breaking the record for the biggest vinyl sales week for an album since MRC data began tracking sales in 1991. 
In 2021, for the first time in the last 30 years, vinyl record sales exceeded CD sales. One out of every three albums sold in the U.S. was vinyl. LP indie retailers sold almost half of all vinyl LPs, while Taylor Swift was the format's top-selling artist, accounting for 2.6% of all total vinyl sales. This has been attributed to the phenomenon of listeners looking for tangible ways to consume music, especially the fan bases of various musicians. Swift sold 1.695 million vinyl LPs across her entire catalog in 2022, with one of every 25 vinyl LPs sold that year being a Swift album. A sum larger than the next two biggest sellers of vinyl combined, Harry Styles with 719,000 and The Beatles with 553,000. In March 2023, the RIAA published a revenue report for 2022 in which vinyl accounted for $1.2 billion of physical media sales out of a total $1.7 billion. This was the first instance of vinyl sales growth outpacing CD sales since 1987, as CD saw an 18% decline in sales year on year. Vinyl revenue grew by 12.8% in the second half of 2018 and 12.9% in the first six months of 2019, while the revenue from CDs barely budged. If these trends hold, records will soon be generating more money than compact disc. Best Buy discontinued CDs in 2019, but as of January 2020, still sells vinyl. Target Corporation and Walmart still sell CDs, but use less shelf space for them and use more space for vinyl records, players, and accessories, unquote. To be sure, streaming still accounts for the vast majority of music sales, since it's rather difficult to listen to your vintage vinyl on your commute. But more and more people, regular people, not just music buffs, are going back to listening on vinyl for any number of reasons. Like I said, I started buying vinyl a year or two ago. I was drunk one night and fucking around on eBay. Why am I not surprised? And I saw this record album by the Scorpions that I had had as a teenager. It's a love drive. It's a dude sitting in the back of a limousine with a woman and her her breast is exposed, but her boob is like the nipples totally covered by bubble gum and he's pulling and it's all stringy. And I really loved this album as a teenager. The songs were great, but mostly it was the boobs. So I saw this album, and being a little drunk, I I bought it on an impulse. The next morning, I woke up and now realized that uh, I had this vinyl album, and for the first time in 30 years, I I had nothing to play it on. So I bought this very cheap little record player, and when I put that record on the record player, I traveled back in time. Listening to music was an experience again, not just a background noise to life. The tactile sense of a record... Even the hisses and pops of a dirty record on a cheap stylus reminded me of my youth. And before I knew it, I was buying more records and I'm getting a better turntable. And two years and nearly 150 records, 150 records later, I, I guess I'm a collector now. Not an aficionado because, after all, no self-respecting music stuff would have as many Jimmy Buffett albums as I do. 15 at at last count. So what does any of this have to do with Empire Records or even high fidelity? Very little. Harsh but fair. But it ties together the resurgence in vinyl, which is uh, with a silly little side story on Empire Records and how it's now an internet thing. Happy Rex Manning Day! Looper.com says, quote, In Empire Records, Maxwell Caulfield's Rex Manning, an 80s pop star who has faded into obscurity but is scheduled to show up at a film's eponymous record store to sign autographs for his new album. As a result, the show's employees taken to mockingly refer to the event as Rex Manning Day. On social media, fans of the film have begun honoring Empire Records by celebrating Rex Manning Day every April date, the same date that the movie takes place, unquote. 
That's it. That's all. It's a it's a silly internet thing from a time on the internet when we found things on the internet that brought us together instead of tore us apart. Rex Manning Day is a goofy fan thing that is now largely just a blip on the social media radar and only noted by those of us who loved Empire Records and maybe missed the record stores in our youth, even if they were staffed by total pricks. And as to why people are buying vinyl these days, even people who never experienced when they were kids, I think it's pretty simple. People want to own their music. Streaming in all its forms, we get books, music, or movies and TV as taking away our ability to own what we buy. Shows come and go from streaming services, forcing you to switch services if you want to see your favorite show, or, you know... You could be a pirate. Streaming services are notorious for paying their artists shit. But if you buy a record, the artist gets a much larger percentage of the profits. And hey, anything you own digitally can be altered, modified, or even deleted, and maybe you'll get a refund, but maybe not. But that doesn't change the fact that we all saw Han shoot Greedo first, and no amount of later editing can change that, and if you had the fucking original fucking Star Wars on videotape, you would know! Sorry. Sorry, I still get a little upset about that. Owning physical media, like vinyl records, makes your ownership of the art permanent, and irrevocable in a way that streaming never can. Capitalism giveth, but once you have the physical product in your hand, capitalism cannot take it away. Every time we buy a vinyl album, we say to corporations who are increasingly trying to buy our childhood and commoditize it, damn the man, save the empire. That is it for our show this week. Oh, I have been waiting for the stars to align so I could do a show about Rex Manning Day on or near Rex Manning Day, which is why this show is going to drop off schedule on time for friggin' Rex Manning Day. I admit, I didn't see the movie when it came out, but I did buy the soundtrack when it came out, because it was all B-sides of 90s bands, and it was fucking stellar. Just the kind of thing that music store snobs loved and losers like me weren't supposed to know about. Now, if you were to rate and review this show, other people would find us, hear us, and harshly judge you for your taste in podcasts just like a record store snob judges me when I buy Phil Collins albums. And hey, if you like what we do, you can throw us a dollar to save the empire at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing because he has zero problem kicking you out of his podcast studio like Rob did Ian in High Fidelity. So for me, Dave, call me on my car phone with that je ne sais quoi. You need a little bit of my ooh-la-la Bledsoe. Producer, I find myself distracted by your black negligee. You tell me everything with that look on your face. Say no, bull baby. Let's cut to the chase. Gavin and all the fictional Empire staff on this show, we want to say, mustn't dwell. No, 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 not today. We can't. Not on Rex Manning Day. And we'll see you all next week.
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. There it is, the island. Three Mile Island.